Galatians 6. And uh, it's just humorous to me on Sunday mornings, everybody sits on the right side because <laughs> it's closer to the door. And then on Sunday nights and Thursday nights, everybody sits on the left side because it's closer to the door. Poor Yvonne over here is lonely here, you know. It's just a few more feet. So I don't know. Maybe we should just move the sound booth over there. We'll put the pulpit down here and just have a, a one-sided church, okay? The thing, the thing that concerns me is that everybody's on the left from my perspective, okay? We got a bunch of leftists in here. <laughs> so I'm just kidding. <laughs> I know, I know. From It depends. It's all in the eyes of the beholder, right? <laughs> Anyhow, not sure where that came from, but praise the Lord. Galatians chapter 6. Let's stand in honor of God's word. We are entering into the final section of the book of Galatians and really could have preached this last portion as one message. But I think there's going to be value in splitting this up into two. And so we're going to cover verses 11 through 13, though the thought will continue into verse 14. But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Looking forward to that after studying this book. But there's one more jab the Apostle Paul gets in here at these false teachers before he finishes his letter. And I think it's going to be valuable for us to look at that. So let's look at Galatians chapter 6, verse 11. The Apostle Paul writes, Ye see how large a letter I have written unto you with mine own hand. Now let me just communicate something here. Um, it says, you see how large a letter. He's not talking about the, the epistle as a whole. If you actually look it up, the, uh, the word letter there is plural. It's talking about letters like the alphabet. And so um, it's actually saying, you see how large of letters that I've written unto you. And so it's like, you know, you ever written, you ever seen like a kindergartner's writing and it's really big. That's what he's talking about here. And so we're going to explain a little bit of that in a minute. But he says, you see how large a letter I have written unto you with mine own hand. As many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh, they constrain you to be circumcised. Only lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For neither they themselves who are circumcised keep the law but desire to have you circumcised that they may glory in your flesh. The title of our message tonight is this, The Aim of Doctrinal Deviation. The Aim of Doctrinal Deviation. So may God bless you in his word. You can be seated. We'll consider what this passage has for us tonight. Aim determines direction aim determines direction what you're looking at is determining where you're going to go okay now i'm not a hunter and so i don't have a gun i don't have a scope but i am a golfer and so i have here what is called a range finder okay and so it's the closest thing that i have to a scope and so what we're going to do is we're going to pretend if that's okay we're going to pretend that this is the latest gadget used by Inspector Gadget <laughs> or James Bond, whoever you're familiar with there. 
And so, you know, let's just say that, that I'm, I'm using this and I'm scoping out the animals, okay? I've got George there. It says he's about 11 yards from me. You know, it's a little further than that. This thing might be off. But anyhow, so w- what's going to happen, though, is let's just say this is the scope in the top. And then the bottom, I'm, just because it's cool, I'm going to say it's a laser beam, okay? And so I could just shoot this thing and zip right through the wall back there on the back, okay? But here's the point. As I'm scoping through this thing, where I'm aiming is ultimately where I'm going to shoot, okay? So it's not like I'm looking right here and the laser beam is going to go over there. It's not going to go over there. It's not going to go into the ground. It's not going to go into the ceiling. It's going to go right where I'm looking at. Your aim determines your direction. Now, I mentioned I'm a golfer. I've also got up here a putter, okay? So I've got a putter here, and then I've also got an orange golf ball. And on this golf ball, it's got some direction guidances, okay, these lines up there. And so the way that works is whenever you're going to go golfing, you know, you'll, you'll see this as you watch golfers on the TV, that they're like distorting and contorting their bodies, you know, to see the, the angles on the green and everything. And then what I tend to do, because I'm not good at golf, I, I, I golf, but I'm not good at it, <laughs> is you put that thing down and you line it up right where you want to aim it. Now, obviously, if there's a hill, you got to aim it so it's going to curve, okay? But you're going to put it wherever you're intending to hit it. I'm just going to say straight ahead of me is where the hole is. And so you've got the, the guiding lines there that are telling me which way is going to be straight, which way I'm going to be aiming. And then on this, I've got a red line here on the putter that's going, you can tell I'm not a golfer because this is a a white top flight soft feel putter, which is not what the pros use. (laughs) Anyways, and so it's got that line. So what I'm going to do is if I want to hit this thing straight, then I'm going to line up my line on the putter in the dead center of the lines on the ball, okay? And where I'm aiming it, where those lines are going is where the ball is going to go right under the piano, okay? Now, what that means is if I take it and I aim it this way, well, it's gonna go that way, okay? And so where you aim is ultimately where it ends up going. This is true as well of, uh, of when you're mowing the grass, you know, if you're mowing a long field, then you're sitting there on a riding lawnmower and you're supposed to be looking all the way at the other side of the field so that you can mow in a nice straight line. Because it never, could you imagine if I mowed at the Rockies Stadium, Coors Field, those mow lines would be like this. <laughs> but when you watch a baseball game, it's like immaculate. It's like they've got laser guided mowers there. But what it is, is they look at one spot and where their eyes are going is where their mower ends up going. Same thing is true whenever you're driving. That, that's why you want to be sure at night that you're not looking over in the left lane because if you're looking at the lights in the left lane, well, that's where you're going to drift off to. And so wherever you end up aiming is where you end up going. And the same is true in ministry. When it comes to a church, when it comes to your individual ministry, when it comes to your doctrinal beliefs, your ultimate aim in ministry is going to determine the direction of your ministry. And so if our ministry as a church is going to go in the direction that God wants it to go, then we got to make sure that our aim is in the right place. Now, the Apostle Paul has 
writing, writing to the Galatian churches, and the Galatian churches have gotten off track. And the reason they've gotten off track is because they followed some teachers who had gotten off track doctrinally. These Judaizers had uh, developed what Paul describes as a completely different gospel than the one that he had given them. They had received a gospel from Paul that said they could be justified by faith in the atoning death of Jesus Christ. But now these Judaizers have come in and they have taught that, yes, you need Christ, but you also need the Old Testament law. You need to be circumcised. You need to become a Jew. You need to keep the holy days, the feast days, and, and the Feast of Tabernacles, and the Passover, and you need to do these sacrifices. And, and so they're telling them, you, gotta, you, you need Jesus, but you also need all these other things in the Mosaic Law if you're going to be fully righteous and acceptable to God. Well, Paul's been at work in this letter, as we've seen, to show them theologically how their gospel was wrong and his was right. And in chapters 5 and 6, he's been showing them from the practical side of things how their gospel is completely insufficient to make you righteous and more acceptable with God. And he showed them practically how his gospel is perfectly sufficient completely sufficient to make them righteous both before God and here. And the way that God does that is through the sacrificial death of Christ on the cross, who then lives within us. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live yet not I, but Christ liveth in me and the life that I now live by the flesh. I live by the faith of the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so it's the death of Christ. But then in chapter five, he says, Walk in the spirit and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And he gives the fruit of the spirit. And then in chapter six, he's been talking about how the spirit practically works in our lives to restore fallen brethren, to bear each other's burdens, to take care of pastors and ministers of the word and to do good to all men. He showed us how to do that. And so what he's saying is that their gospel is wrong. Mine is right. Theirs doesn't work theologically. Mine does work theologically and theirs doesn't work practically. But my gospel does work practically. And the reason why is because it's the true gospel, the one that God had given. And so Paul's been at work in this letter to communicate that. And he's revealing now here at the end in his final comments in this book that the problem behind their false gospel their deviated doctrine is really one of what they were aiming at, that their aim had determined their direction. And so the question to address tonight is this, why had the Judaizers developed a false doctrine that changed the gospel? What got them there, okay? What verse 11, just kind of an interesting verse, it seems very out of place and very random, but what it's telling us is this, that Paul takes the pen in his own hand to write his final words to the Galatians. He says in verse 11, ye see how large a letter I have written unto you with mine own hand. Now that seems weird. You're thinking, well, hasn't the apostle Paul written this entire letter? Well, the reality is that you'll find in many of his letters that you'll find that somebody else wrote it for him, that he dictated it to them and they transcribed it onto the papyrus or parchment, whatever uh, type of material it was that he was 
writing on. And there are a few reasons as to why that potentially he operated that way. Uh, one of the more popular ones is the idea that maybe he had a physical problem with his eye. That he alluded to that in chapter 4, that he said, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them unto me. That was our relationship. And so there are some that would say that maybe it was an eye problem and that's, that's, there's potential for that. That maybe he wrote these large letters so he could actually see what he was writing. And then there are some that suggest that maybe Paul couldn't write very well. <laughs> some that say that, you know, maybe Hebrew was his first language and so he could write Hebrew just fine. But when it came to Greek, that, that maybe he wasn't as good at writing in Greek. And so he would have somebody else write it for him. But we know that he was actually a well-educated man. That he was a Roman citizen and Greek would have been the English of their day. It was the common man's language, the language of business. And, and so no doubt he would have been able to write that as a Pharisee and a prominent citizen of Rome. And so I don't think that's what the likely scenario was. But whether it was an eye problem or if it wasn't an eye problem, the truth of the matter is that Paul's practice was very common in their day and time. That they did this all the time in more formalized uh, letters and communication they would, they would hire a scribe. They would hire somebody who was familiar and could write artistically in the common and formal font of the day, the official Roman. And, you know, like we have Times New Roman, but you look at old, uh, old parchment writings that they have that beautiful uh, scribal writing on there, okay, even in Old English. And so the idea is that, that people did that all the time because they didn't have printers, they didn't have computers, they didn't have typewriters. And so now some of you might have completely awful handwriting and you would say, I needed a transcriber when I was in school, you know. And so there are times I can't read my dad's writing. There are times I can't read my own writing. So uh, you could think of, you know, maybe as the common man writes, that's not very official. That's not very formal. And so there are some who'd say that, that Paul just followed what they normally did, that he knew under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he was writing scripture and he wanted it to be formalized and he wanted it to be in a, a transmissible print and font so that people would look at it and take it seriously. And so likely, likely that's what it was. And he had uh, oftentimes they were men who were companions in ministry with him. They were other believers. And so we don't know exactly why. But basically what this is telling us is that somebody has been transcribing this whole letter for him. And what he's saying is, I'm taking the pen in my own hand now, the quill, and I'm writing the end of this. And you see how large of a letter, how large my print is, how large my font is that I've written unto you with mine own hand. And you're talking about the large letters here that you know, what, what some historians say is this is likely some form of superscript that Maybe, you know, like what we would do is if you're sending somebody a text message and you really want them to get what you're saying, you'll put it in all caps, you know. That normally means like somebody screaming at you <laughs> or some, you know, with three exclamation marks afterwards. And so that's the idea here. If you really want them to get it, then in our day and age of computers and technology, you're going to put it in bold, all caps. And if you're really mad, then you're going to put it bold, all caps, italicized, exclamation points, and underline. <laughs> you're going to do the whole thing. That's really the idea of what Paul is saying here is he wants them to get, look, this has been transcribed to this point, but I want you to know there's something very important that I want you to get here. And what he starts with at the end of his letter 
is the motivation behind the Judaizers' false doctrine. He says that there are two things that motivated their position specifically on the gospel. And the first thing that motivated their position was self-promotion, self-promotion. Because if you look at verse 12, here's what he says, as many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh, they constrain you to be circumcised. What he's telling them is these people that are in your church right now, these teachers that are coming to you and they're, they're, they're constraining you. That's a word that means compelling. It means that they're persuasively and forcefully uh, pursuing you and trying to get you to do something. They're, they're, they're being very high pressure in this is what he's getting. Here's the reason why they're doing this. They want to make a fair show in the flesh. Now, what does that mean? If you look that up, it's actually one word in the original language, and it's a word that would literally mean the face, uh, but its root word would be talking about the covering of the face, that the idea is putting a mask on the face. The idea here is that they want to stand well with somebody. They want to look good. And so they're putting on a show in order to have a good standing with somebody. Well, who do they want to have a good standing with? The Jews. They want to have a good standing with the Jews. Well, what better way than have a good standing with the Jews than to bring a long list of Gentile converts with you? That, hey, look at how many people we got to convert to Judaism. These many were circumcised, and now they're keeping the law, and they're keeping the holy days, and it's going to make the feast here at the synagogue go kaboom. I mean, it's going to be awesome. You see the idea of self-promotion here. Their zeal was to compel these people to be circumcised. But I want you to know that their zeal wasn't out of a zeal for the law. Their motivation was not because they loved the law of God. And they wanted people to keep the law of God because verse 13 says, For neither they themselves who are circumcised keep the law, but desire to have you circumcised that they may glory in your flesh. You know what he's saying there? It's not like they're coming and they're telling you, you need to keep the law because this is what God wants and because th this is the way that it's supposed to be done. I mean, after all, it's what the Bible says here in the Old Testament. And so you need to keep the law. No, he says, those who are constraining you to be circumcised and keep the law, they don't even keep the law. <laughs> they can't keep the law is what the Apostle Paul has said. That's why we needed Jesus to come and keep the law for us because we couldn't. And so he's saying it's not that they are so strongly motivated by this passion for the law. He says, no, they desire to have you circumcised that they may glory in your flesh, boast that they may come before their Jewish brethren over at the synagogues in Galatia or maybe when they come from Jerusalem or when they go back to Jerusalem and say, look at how many we got circumcised. Look at how many we had that converted to Judaism. Look at how many proselytes we gained to ourselves. It was all about them. It was all about their own self-promotion to put on that face and to look good before their Jewish brethren. And so their doctrinal position was motivated, first of all, by self-promotion. But notice that it was motivated, second of all, by convenience. Because if you look at verse 12 again, he says, As many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh, they constrain you to be circumcised only for this reason, lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. 
What's that talking about? Well, at that time, the cross was not the sweet symbol of Christianity that it is today. A cross wasn't something you wore around your neck. It wasn't something that you tattooed on your arm. It wasn't something that you put a bumper sticker on your chariot back in their day and time. No. The cross was an instrument of brutality. The cross was an instrument of death. It was not something you wanted to be associated with. Uh, it was, in fact, it was the, the death that was reserved for the enemies of the Roman estate. That those who were enemies of Caesar, those who were insurrectionists, those who were uh, thieves of Romans, those who killed Roman soldiers, the zealots in Jerusalem, they were the ones who would be hung up and crucified. Why? Because they were the enemies of Caesar. And so enter in these Christians into Galatia. And these people from these cities know that's the purpose of the cross. And now you've got the leader of the Christian movement, a man by the name of Jesus Christ, who was put to death by crucifixion. They are not looking at him as a savior. They are looking at him as a troublemaker, as somebody who stands against Rome. Now, that may have been popular in Jerusalem, but it wasn't popular in Galatia. It wasn't popular in Greece. It wasn't popular in Italy for him to do that. And so that's how they would look at Jesus. And yet it was through that cruel death that Jesus paid the price for every man's sin and he paved the pathway for redemption if man would only repent and believe the gospel and trust in Christ as their Savior, they would be justified and declared righteous before God. That's what Jesus accomplished through that cross. John MacArthur said this, that God transformed the most fearful expression of man's hatred into the most beautiful expression of his divine love. That's what God did with the cross. Identifying with the cross at their time came with an intense persecution in this region by the Jews. If you were to go back to Acts 13 and 14 and you look at the Apostle Paul's ministry there, you'll find that he comes to the city of Antioch in Pisidia, not the same as Syria, a different Antioch that was in the region of Galatia. And he preached these words, Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man, Jesus Christ, is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins, and by him, listen, all that believe are justified from all things, from which ye could not be justified by the law of Moses. You know what that means? He preached that the only means of justification is through the death of the Savior and without the works of the law. That's what he preached when he was there in Antioch, in a city in Galatia. And the next week, the entire, I mean, it says almost, the entire city came out to hear his preaching and the Jews saw the crowd that it was way bigger than their synagogue gatherings and they got envious and jealous and they stirred up the people and they stirred up many of the devout women of the city and they drove Paul and Barnabas out of town. Persecution. It says specifically in Acts 13, they brought persecution upon them. So Paul and Barnabas leave and they head to a city called Iconium in Acts 14. And in Iconium, he preaches the message of the cross. And you know what happens? Jews from Antioch come to Iconium and they begin to stir up the people and they hatch this plan to stone Paul and Barnabas. And it actually says they assaulted the believers there, both Jews and Gentiles. And the reason why was for their association with the cross. It was their association with the cross apart from the law. 
And so the Jews stir up the people. They hatch this plan, but Paul and Barnabas catch wind of it. And so they, they head out of town for Lystra and Derby, and they preach the message of the cross apart from the law. These are all cities in Galatia. These are all the cities that the churches that he's writing to in this book. And it says that, that as he preached there, that the Jews came from both Antioch and Iconium. They came to Lystra and Derby, and they drove Paul out of the city, and they stoned him to the point where many believe that he was actually dead and God raised him back to life. I would call that persecution. And the persecution and what Paul is communicating here is that the persecution that was going on in the region of Galatia was directly tied to the cross and the obliteration of the law. That's what it was tied to. Christ apart from the law. And what he's saying here is that these guys, they, in, in chapter 5, verse 11, make sure I don't miss this. He says, and I, brethren, if I yet preach circumcision, if I preach, you have to keep the law. Why do I yet suffer persecution? Then is the offense of the cross ceased. You know what he's saying there? If you have to keep the law, then there's no more offense. Then there's no more persecution. There's no reason for the Jews to come after you because you're upholding the law of Moses. And so what he's saying here in verse 12 is that they're not, they're not compelling you to be circumcised out of this great desire uh, for the law. They're not doing this out of, out of this great desire to see you become righteous before God. No, that's not what it's about. The true heart of their false doctrine here is the fact that they don't want to be persecuted for their association with the cross and their denial of the law. And so rather than living that hard life of denying himself, taking up his cross and following Jesus, they settled to come up with a doctrine that was more convenient to their lives. What lessened the persecution what made life easier, what made them more accepted in the Jewish society there. That's what it was about. See, even though Jesus willingly suffered for them, they were unwilling to suffer for him. And thus, life would sure be easier and it would sure be more convenient if we would just preach, yes, you need Christ, but you also need to keep the law. So why were these people compelling the Galatians to keep the law? Why had their gospel morphed into a completely different gospel? What Paul is teaching the Galatians here is that these Judaizers compromised on doctrine and they changed the gospel because they were aiming at self-promotion and convenience. Their aim determined their direction. And his message to the Galatians is this. Don't follow them. Don't follow men whose aim is at men. See, the truth is that their aim in ministry was to please men. It was, it was no longer about what Jesus said. It was no longer about the gospel that they first received. It was no longer about what the truth really was, it was about what pleased the Jews and kept them off their back. 
It was about what made them more acceptable to the Jews and kept them out of trouble. It was about what gave them a platform in society. It was about what made them popular in the synagogue. Listen, here's what it was. It was a man-centered ministry. And man-centered ministry develops man-made doctrines. Man-made ministry. When you are aiming at men in your ministry, you will develop doctrines that do not come from God, but come from man. They're made up by man. See, because your aim determines your direction, if your eyes are fixated on what pleases man, on what appeals to their appetites, on what appeals to the cultural mindsets, if you base your ministry on what is going to make you more accepted in society or what's going to give you a bigger platform and a bigger voice in the community, if your aim is fixated upon man, then you're going to weaken doctrine. You're going to compromise on the gospel. You're going to make it more palatable to the postmodern mindset today. And what's going to happen is you'll end up in doctrinal deviation teaching and practicing things that fail to reflect what God has said in his word. And Paul's message to the Galatian believers is the same message that God wants us to get. And that is don't follow those whose ministries take aim at man. Now, I'm not talking about preferences I'm not talking about traditions. I'm not talking about practical applications of doctrine either. I'm talking about the teaching that God explicitly speaks to in his word. I'm talking about the deity of Jesus Christ. The fact that he said, I and my father are one. The fact that the word of God says the there are three, the father, the son, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. We're talking about the Trinity, the deed of Christ. We're talking about the virgin birth, justification by grace through faith, baptism of believers only by a local church, by the mode of immersion. Those are, listen, there's all kinds of thoughts out there about infant baptism. There's all kinds of thoughts out there uh, about baptismal regeneration. And what I'm going to tell you, the infant baptism ideology comes from a verse in one verse in Acts chapter 10, that talks about how Cornelius was baptized and his house. God did not speak explicitly to babies being baptized. And we can speculate all we want. There had to be babies there. Did God say it? But what God has said is it is believers after they believe, not before, not in conjunction with, but following their belief. But what happens is when you want to appeal to man and you want to say, you know, I don't want to lose this member. And so maybe I ought to accept their infant baptism. You end up with man-made doctrine. You see, we've got to be careful because there are things that God has spoken to explicitly, which would include the inspiration and authority of Scripture. It would include the exclusivity of the gospel for salvation and eternal life. But Pastor Mark, you know where we live? We live in Boulder. This is an all faiths come to God community. 
Yes, I understand where we live and, and that, that people believe and the popular belief in our culture today is that all paths lead to God. And that's why we have so many universalists and Unitarian churches. And it's why we have a Jewish renewal community that we meet at on Sundays where uh, it's a chance for everybody to come and connect to the divine as they see fit. That's the society that we live in today. Now, I was talking to a man the other day and and he, he approaches religion, and I've heard this before, according to the popular philosophical idea of five blind men trying to describe an elephant. That you've got one blind man, and he's feeling out the, the leg of this elephant, and he's trying to describe what it is, not really knowing what it is. And then you have one that's over there with the tail, and there's a little bit of hair on there, and you know, they're feeling it out and trying to describe what it is. And then you got a guy over here with the, the husk there, the, tu the tusk and then the trunk. And they're trying to figure out what all this is. And they're just doing the best that they can as blind men to describe what this is. And it's one elephant. Well, people take that philosophical argument and they apply it to religion. And they say Islam is trying to describe God and, and they feel him out this way and, and then Jews feel him out this way and Christians feel him out this way and Hindus this way and Buddhists this way and atheists this way. And, and so the idea here is that everybody is really, they're describing in their own way who God is. The fundamental flaw in that argument is this. You are presuming to know that it is an elephant. By you saying that all paths lead to God, you are making the exclusive claim that you know who God is. But the reality is, with an infinite God, we cannot know who God is unless he reveals himself to us. I'm thankful that it's not up to us to define or describe who God is or to feel it out. It's not up to us to do that. No, God very clearly and plainly appeared to men and gave them his revelation. And people look at it and they're like, these are just the opinions of all these different men who wrote the Bible. And I want to say this, all of their opinions tie in very, very closely. If they were all different men over the span of several thousand years, and yet you find a man like Daniel who gives the same exact description of Jesus that John gives in the book of Revelation a couple thousand years later, uh, or a few, several hundred years later, uh, that's a miracle. <laughs> that sounds to me like rather than men describing who God is, that God is prescribing who he is. See, the reality is, is if, we, if we try to appease our culture here and we try to broaden the gospel, we are aiming at man. We're not aiming at God. We're not aiming at his word. We're, if we're trying to appeal to the postmodern mindset that, okay, maybe we don't have it all figured out and maybe we are just feeling out God this way and, and all of you can just, we can all just come together. Well, the Bible says that God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. That tells me that the God of the Bible says there is truth. But listen, here's what will happen is if we end up, if we end up falling into the trap, of I guess let me get my little scope here. If we end up aiming for men, you know where we're going to end up going? Man-made doctrines. 
because man-centered ministry develops man-made doctrine. Do you want to know why we've got so many different denominations today? Why we've got so many so much disagreement among Christianity? It's because instead of taking the Bible literally for what God says and what God prescribes, denominations read their tradition into it. And I'm not going to say that as Baptists, we're never guilty of that either because we are. But the reason why there are so vast, vast differences is because we take the scripture like he was baptized in his house and we say there had to be babies there. God didn't come up with that. Man came up with that. God didn't spell that out. Man insinuated that. And so what happens is, is when we begin to take aim at what's appealing to men, when we take aim at what men think of certain things, it won't be long before our doctrine is just made up. And we don't find it in Scripture. Like purgatory. Where's that? Based on a verse that's talking about how our works are going to be tried by fire. What we did for God's glory versus what we did for our glory. And you can take a verse that teaches that's going to happen at the judgment seat of Christ and say, man has to buy his way out of it. No, that's an encouragement. Make sure what you do is for God and not for yourself. Because you won't have any crowns to cast at Jesus' feet. But see, what happens is if we begin to insinuate our, our religious system into it and our denominational beliefs into it, rather than just looking at the Bible for what it says, then we're going to end up coming up with man-made doctrine. That's what happens. You know, it'd sure be easier and it'd sure be more convenient to draw a crowd if we let biblical baptism slide. For independent Baptist churches in particular, one of the most difficult things uh, or struggles why church plants struggle to get off the ground is because we take a firm biblical position on baptism. And our church would grow a lot faster if we would accept Catholic baptism, if we would accept Lutheran baptism, if we would accept Methodist baptism, if we would accept every other baptism that's out there, our church would grow and people would join like that. But the hang up is always baptism. And it'd be easy for us to let that slide because it's convenient or because it appeals to man. But if our aim is at man, we'll end up with man-made doctrines. But we want to be sure as a church that we are taking our doctrine from the Bible and not from man and not from denominations, but from what God has said. And that is that A, baptism is after salvation. And so any baptism before salvation is not a real baptism. The Bible teaches that baptism adds you to the church, that it's part of church membership, that it's required for church membership. And how Acts chapter 19 teaches that the, the disciples of John who, yes, had the truth, yes, believed in Jesus, 
no, did not need to be saved again, but Paul said they needed to be baptized again. It's really easy to let that slide because it's convenient because a church would grow a lot more. But what will happen is if you let that slide, then you allow false doctrine to come into the church and it doesn't protect the purity of the church. And then what happens is we can have schisms in the church and all these divisions over different doctrines. And then what happens is you end up with man-made doctrines floating through the church. It'd sure be easy to grow a church if we weakened our position on the authority of scriptures. If we said, you know, it's an old book, it's outdated, doesn't necessarily apply today, it'd be easy to get a crowd, but it'd be hard to see Christians grow. It'd hard to be see, it, it would be hard to see lives changed. It'd be easy to grow a church if we never address the doctrines of sin, holiness, and separation, which, by the way, are biblical doctrines. They're not hobby horses <laughs> of preachers, you know, to, to don't go to the bar and don't go and gamble and don't go to Vegas, you know, and associate yourself with Sin City. I mean, does that even sound like a place where Christians ought to be, you know? Does the Bible say don't go to Vegas? No, but it does say abstain from all appearance of evil. What does that mean? That's where the Holy Spirit comes in. When the Holy Spirit speaks to you and says you are associated with evil, you've got a responsibility to stop and to do what he leads you to do. You see how this plays together? See, but it would sure be easier if we just did, if we didn't ever address sin and you came in here and I gave you self-help instruction and I never talked about purity and I never talked about church membership and I never talked about people's need to be saved. And, you know, we, we could grow an all faiths church. We could. But it would be a man-made doctrine and we would be deviant from what God has prescribed. If our aim is man-centered, our doctrine will be man-made. See, the reality is that we have no business weakening doctrines that God has clearly revealed in Scripture. Our aim must not be on doing what's convenient, on what draws a crowd, on what builds a kingdom, or on what establishes an influential celebrity pastor. That's not what it's about. Our aim must be not on what man pleases, uh, on what pleases man, but on what pleases God. It shouldn't be on what's popular with man. It should be on what's prescribed by God. Now, listen, we don't have to be hateful. We don't have to be mean-spirited. Uh, we, don't, we don't have to kick people out of the church because they're from a different denomination. Uh, somebody comes in here with piercings and tattoos and gang symbols all over them, Somebody comes in here who's of an alternative lifestyle. We don't go and pick them up and say, you're not welcome here. No, we've got the message that can change their life and restore them to God and can reveal to them who God is. And that's what they need the most. And so we have guests come in here that may not look like they've grown up in church. You know what we ought to do? Love on them. Amen. Love on them. Amen. Care for them. Invite them to lunch after church. If it's the first time I ever made a, met them, never hurts. They may think you're weird and say no. But you know what they'll say? Wow, that person wanted to take me to lunch and they never met me before. And that can make all the difference in the world. And so we don't, we don't have to be mean-spirited. 
We can speak the truth in love and we ought to. Otherwise, people will end up with a faulty belief system and the result will be eternally catastrophic for them. But man-centered ministry develops man-made doctrine. And we want to be sure that the doctrines that we stand on doesn't come from man, that it's not coming from culture, that it's not even coming from tradition. We need to be sure that our doctrinal stances come from God and the way that God has revealed those is in his word through holy men of God who spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Our aim determines our direction. And what we're focusing on will determine what we believe. And so we need to make sure that our primary focus in ministry and that our primary focus in life is fixated on who God is and what he has revealed in his word. But this isn't just true in ministry life. This isn't just true in church life. This is true in your life personally. Don't just get all your doctrine from Billy Graham. <laughs> Certainly don't get it from Joyce Meyer. <laughs> but listen, Chuck Swindoll, Franklin Graham, John Piper, godly men who preach the Bible. But if there comes a time in their life, you know, can I, can I say this as an independent Baptist? There, there are men that I emulate. There are men that I appreciate, men that have been very influential in my life. My father's one of them, but my pastors in Oklahoma City and other pastors that I've met as I was traveling out on the road. And I'd like to pattern my ministry after them and my preaching after them. But the reality is this, if there ever comes a time when a man, when a person in my life deviates from the scripture, I must stand with the scripture. Because if you get your eyes fixated on one preacher, you just might follow his man-made doctrine. And before it, you know it, your life is no longer centered on Christ. Your life's no longer centered on his word. It's centered on an individual, a fallen human being. And no doubt when they fall, your faith will fall. But when you anchor your life to the Holy Scriptures and you take aim at who God is and what he has said, that'll make sure you're not standing on man-made doctrine, but on God-given doctrine. And so let's make sure we're taking aim in the right place.